This is a Macquarie Group podcast. Hello, and welcome to Macquarie's Perspectives podcast, where our diverse team of experts and invited special guests share their latest thinking on current and emerging topics. I'm Lisa Jamison, Macquarie's Regional Head of Corporate Affairs for Australia and New Zealand. And today I'm joined by two colleagues who are leading on very different solutions to one of the most complex and critical challenges facing the world, climate change. Now with increasing numbers of public and private entities around the world making decarbonisation commitments, the demand for solutions designed to help them keep these promises is growing rapidly. Though no one size fits all, the job of cutting carbon emissions is requiring the use of more immediately available options like carbon offsets, while the world is figuring out the best longer term and shorter term structural solutions to reduce carbon. Joining me today from Macquarie Asset Management to explore just two approaches Macquarie is taking in helping businesses to decarbonise in the long and the short term are Kate Vision, Green Investment Group's Global Head of Industrial Transition and Clean Fuels, and Liz O'Leary, Head of Agriculture and Natural Assets. Welcome Kate and welcome Liz. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Kate, I'm going to start at a really broad level here. Looking globally, there seems to be pretty much a consensus that the world has this increasingly urgent problem to solve around human-caused carbon dioxide emissions. And there's also agreement on the fact that to deal with this problem, we're going to have to speed up the changes we're already making to the way we do things. And that's in everything from how we produce energy to how we feed the world and how we approach transport, real estate and even basic industry. So you work across a wide range of industries. What are the factors you are seeing which are accelerating decarbonisation? Because it seems to be going probably faster than we thought it would. Absolutely it is. And, you know, really pleasingly in the last couple of months, we've actually seen a substantial step up in what governments are doing, um, most particularly the US, who, as most of you would be aware, has passed something called the Inflation Reduction Act, which includes a whole range of incentives for a broad spectrum of clean energy technologies. And we think this will actually not only accelerate decarbonisation in the United States, but globally. Mm-hmm. But for the last couple of years, it's actually been corporates who've been driving change. Um, we saw this in at COP26, where they took um, centre stage. And this trend is only accelerating. So these big companies, they're probably the ones who are feeling the pressure the most. Where is this? Where is the pressure for them to accelerate coming from? Interesting thing about corporate is they actually have a range of stakeholders. And almost every one of those stakeholders is starting to ramp up the pressure. For example, their shareholders, their boards who are worried about you know, accountability, um, their insurers, their customers and their staff. So they're feeling it from all sides. So tell me, for example, the shareholder pressure, how is that playing out? Well, we all know that there is a weight of capital moving towards sustainable investing. And most major fund managers now have very clear policies around sustainability and emissions reductions for the companies they invest in. Major institutional shareholders are actually starting to hold corporates to account. Mm-hmm. Great example of this is last year, the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors 
wrote to all directors of Australia's top 100 companies, putting them on notice that their voting going forward would depend on how those directors and their corporates respond to the climate challenge. In addition to this, we see this globalisation um, theme occurring. So there's been a movement um, on, say, on climate votes. Effectively, what they are is that's when corporates put forward their action plan on a voluntary basis and their shareholders vote on it. So it's, it's a real sense check about how they're going. So I'm thinking that for corporates, um, it, it probably feels like this pressure to decarbonise is coming from all sides. But then we move to the big question is to what do these companies actually need to do to move forward? And probably most relevant, what are the biggest challenges they have to overcome to decarbonise? Look, I think the thing that people aren't talking about is data and the veracity of data. If you have this requirement to disclose and you're not only relying on your own systems and your own people mm. who may or may not have the expertise, you're relying on that of your suppliers, you're relying on that of your raw inputs, or you're actually relying on that of your customers because many people are starting to report their scope three emissions, which is often their customers' emissions, pulling together all that data and then being comfortable that it's it's actually correct is going to be an amazing challenge. So data systems, and certainly we're going to have to rely on things like AI in this space. Um, but that's all still to come. And I suppose this data is going to have to be globally comparable and verifiable and completely um, easy to compare between jurisdictions. <laughs> yeah, there's going to, there's going to be some trial and error, I'm sure. But yeah, that's right. And as Again, you have this competing tension. You, you're trying to get out there and do the right thing. You've got pressure to report. You've started to get standards to report, but your, your systems and your people might not be up to it. So when we talk to people often, we are actually one of the first questions we ask them is, where are they on their data collection? How have they gone through and started to think about their emissions? What sort of, how were their systems coped? And actually, do their people understand what's coming? And that's going to be one of the big challenges, just having that expertise, the people knowledge of what has to be done. Okay, so data is definitely a challenge. What else? One of the things that really fascinates me is the fact that people are going to have to make some choices because the whole thing about getting to net zero, there's not for many companies one decarbonisation pathway. Mm -hmm. There's some really difficult choices you have to make. And this probably comes to bear most if you've got um, a heavy asset organisation where you have long asset lives. Good example is shipping. So many shippers have net, net zero targets, but shipping fleets have really long lives. And if you're going to build up a new shipping fleet with completely different technology, it's going to take decades. In addition, you need to work out what your fuel choice is, make sure you've got access to that fuel and make sure you've got the bunkering storage or the fuel storage at the ports of your choice. Building out these sort of supply chains will also take decades. Given this, shippers are really starting to have to think now about how, how they actually turn around their fleets. And that's really hard because in the shipping industry, there's this debate ranging, ra raging about what is the fuel of choice going to be? Is it going to be green methanol, which has advantages and disadvantages, or is it going to be green ammonia, which also has strengths and weaknesses? So that's a really hard choice. And, and, you know, if you make the wrong choice when you're investing all that capital, it, it could spell disaster for the corporate you're actually sitting in. So I think that that strategic assessment 
and having the knowledge to make the right choices is one of the, the biggest issues facing corporates. So how do you manage this? You know, one of the ways we, we talk to people a lot about is that there's some safety in numbers. So if you can use common infrastructure and you can spread your risk amongst a number of mm-hmm. users of that infrastructure, you can actually reduce your risk up front and you can actually take advantage of um, investing over time as costs start to come down. So it sounds like cooperation is going to be the key thing that's going to get us there faster. Absolutely. And, and look, somewhere like Australia has a history of our energy companies and our mining companies doing everything, particularly on that heavy infrastructure side by themselves. I don't think they'll have that luxury here. And, and interestingly enough, you're starting to see a change in attitude. For example, some of the major Australian miners are actually cooperating um, within the bounds of what they can do as competitors to actually work out what is the best way we can quick, quickly electrify our heavy mining fleets, which is incredibly advantageous because Australia burns a huge amount of diesel in that space and the sooner that can be done, the better. Okay, so I'm getting that your theme is is the cooperation sort of theme. Um, turning to you, Liz, we seem to have this situation where the world's on this decarbonisation mm-hmm. journey and you see people like Kate who are working on the more structural shifts um, and what's taking place in industry. But your remit is really different in agriculture. So what does the decarbonisation thematic look like in in what is probably the world's oldest industry? Yeah, and and maybe before we we go there, given we're going to be discussing the potential of our Australian landscapes in the decarbonisation solution set, uh, I'd like to pay my respects to our First Nations people uh, in this country. They've cultivated and cared for our landscapes for generations and generations. And I'm sure you you both join me in paying our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We do. So for context, um, our agriculture business here in Australia manages a big portfolio. We're across about 4.6 million hectares. Um, so it's big by, by any account across really diverse landscapes. And, and you know, we're part of a sector that has a job to do on the decarbonisation journey, like many of the sectors Kate's talked about. So if you step back and, and look at the decarbonisation imperative for ag, we, we account globally for a little under 12% of our GHG emissions. Is that in Australia or globally? That's globally. In yeah. Australia, it's actually slightly higher. And, and globally, cover about 38% of our land mass. And in Australia, about 55%. Yep. So we've got a job to do. And that job um, is well underway. And the, the perspective I come at um, at this from today is not just an investment manager, but we actually have the, the real privilege of not only owning some fabulous farming assets, but actually operating most of them as well. So as an operator of these assets, we are, you know, we often we often call it buckshot versus the silver bullet in ag, mm-hmm. um, is pulling every production lever and use change lever we have to drive down the, um, the emissions whilst still fulfilling our duty to produce enough food and fibre for a growing global population. So that looks at all sorts of resource efficiency initiatives, mostly using technology, to be honest, um, whether that be geospatial to help us um, map and understand the potential of our landscapes better so that we're really farming and maximising the farming potential of the highest potential yielding landscape through to you know, resource efficiency moves like um, you know, weed seeking technology where you know when I was a kid growing up on the farm, every um, 
every spray application was to the whole of crop. Now we've got these wonderful little, very sophisticated infrared cameras and robotics that can go out and seek out the weed uh, mm -hmm. and spray the weed versus the crop. And not in every application, but in some applications. This is driving down chemical use by up to 90%, and that has a follow-on effect in terms of our emissions profile for that crop. So lots and lots of work going on, you know, across ag tech, across input manufacturers, across farmers in working out effectively a pretty simple equation. How do you produce more with less? And the less has a, a, a big carbon profile associated with it. If we can address that, then we're, we're driving down our emissions profile. But your interests are aligned there, aren't they? Absolutely. It's good for your business and good yeah. for the planet, so. Absolutely, but it's not always that easy. You know, if yeah. you say it quickly, it sounds easy, but we do have, like the shipping industry, like the mining industry, we've got some big thorny stuff to deal with. And, you know, in our portfolio, you know, fertilizer is one, methane is another. So, you know, the approach, you know, we're taking is to look up and down the supply chain and say, whereas a big operator in this space, can we help our supply chain to innovate and, and produce decarbonisation solutions that we can apply across our portfolio. And and so, you know, we've um, we've really enjoyed stepping into some of the um, the food supplement space in our in our livestock business, in particular looking at the potential of seaweed um, to reduce reduce methane emissions in in our livestock herd. How yeah. do you do yeah. that? Like this is like this is game changer stuff and this is stuff that you got to throw your weight behind. Not all, all of it will work, but if we can unlock an innovation like something like Asparagopsis, which is a red seaweed grows in a native context um, off the coast of Tasmania in mm -hmm. the south of Australia, um, when um, when fed in a food supplement for livestock, particularly for cattle, in in very small portions, 20 grams a day type portions early stage research is demonstrating it reduces methane emissions by upwards of 90% while driving productivity in that animal. So it's spending less of its energy burping and doing other things, yeah. more of its energy growing faster, producing protein faster. So this is a, you know, this is sort an efficiency. Sort of like a, a cow antacid sort of thing. <laughs> a little bit, a yeah. little bit. So this is about how do we, you know, how do we, to Kate's point, we've got to make we've got to have a go we've mm -hmm. got to have a crack at lots of solutions right across our value chains because um, there is no one single solution or no one decision we make today that sets us up to be net zero in the near term there's just a whole lot of solutions so that's that's part of what we're doing within our portfolio within our sector um, and actually the R&D effort is um, is a great opportunity to build new and fresh human capital um, in this space that's interested in technology, interested in R&D, interested in the decarbonisation purpose and, and mission. But the other aspect of our portfolio and, and, and landscapes more generally that, that we're really enjoying exploring is their opportunity to, to, to play an alternative use. Um, as, as sectors seek to decarbonise, it will take time. And while they are transitioning, the opportunity to provide carbon offsets produced using our natural assets, so that's biomass and land and water, to produce 
carbon removals or carbon abatement mechanisms. Our opportunity to do that across our portfolio is something that's been occupying a lot of our time. And, and really it's a it's simple principle that, that nat natural assets or nature-based solutions are one of the lowest cost forms of abatement currently existing within our toolbox. Mm -hmm. Lots of new innovation coming down the pipe, but as we sit here today, it's the lowest cost way form of carbon credit development, which then has an opportunity to be rewarded in, in, in the emerging environmental market. So i.e. there is a revenue opportunity for strong environmental management producing carbon credits. And that's an ecosystem that really didn't exist in the past, but exists today for the very reasons Kate was talking about. The, the very reason that we have particularly corporates, but also governments all around the world pledging to net zero, needing to go on a pathway and needing to have lots of things in their toolbox, including offsets, to take them on that pathway. Can you actually explain the mechanisms of how this offset works? Yep, yep. So lots and lots of rules. Um, unfortunately, we don't have one global marketplace. Um, Lisa, it'd be lovely yep. if we do, but we're not there yet. That's what we, Kate was we, talking about, measurable. We, yeah, we, we hope yep. we might get there, but there are you know, well over 55 regulated marketplaces plus an emerging, rapidly emerging voluntary marketplace. So that's where the demand is coming for, from, and it's coming for a really simple commodity. And that's a CO2 equivalent emissions reduction unit. So how do you produce, how do you manufacture one of those? Well, depending on where you are in the world, they're called methods or they're called protocols. So they're basically science-based or science-anchored methods that can demonstrate that by the action you are taking, you are either avoiding an emission of a tonne of carbon or you're effectively removing a tonne of carbon that exists in the atmosphere. So these are really simple processes that even you and I can remember mm -hmm. back to primary school, processes like photosynthesis in vegetation and trees, being able to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, so that's, a, that's, a, that's an example of a removal mechanism. So around the world as voluntary and regulated markets build effectively these science-based rules. We as landscape owners sit on the other side of those rules and start to make decisions about how we can produce a commodity that fulfills those rules. And then the real trick for us is looking at how we can do that and integrate that into our landscapes whilst at the same time continuing to produce food and fibre. So we really are walking and chewing gum mm -hmm. at the same time in this sector so that we're producing the goods the world needs to continue growing, um, but at the same time produce a, a new commodity in our world, which is, um, which is this CO2e. Yep. Which you're already doing, but yeah. it just needs to be measured in a consistent way. Yeah, measurement's important and scale is really important. Yeah. So I think that's the it's the other piece. Um, you know, Kate and I often talk and spend time together wrestling with some common hurdles in this space. You know, for a lot of the breakthrough activities she's involved with, you know, she's wrestling with the same issue. You know, once the technology and the know-how is there in these emerging marketplaces, how do you scale up quickly? And it, so it requires... It requires the R&D and the science community to help us unlock the innovation. Then it requires the investment community and the capital allocators to be willing to back 
newness mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily have existing benchmarks, doesn't have track record, because guess what, didn't exist. Yeah. So we have to, but, it, but, it's, but we have to approach these solutions at scale. We don't have time to take small scale venture capital like dips in the water. We, ha we have to come at it um, with a real view around how do we unlock the full potential of our global landscapes. So that's the, that's the conundrum here. Yeah. And like Kate, it requires measurement, requires marketplaces to emerge, requires rules to emerge, requires human capability to come together. And somehow we've got to synchronise all of that at the same time. And are you saying we have to back a whole lot of different technologies or solutions to get there? Um, instead of just sort of putting all our eggs in the in one basket. Yeah, I th I think that's yeah. absolutely yeah. that's absolutely right. You know, it really is the we've got to we've got to throw a whole lot of solutions at a complex problem, and and acknowledge some of this will have to evolve. Yeah, we won't get it all right in the beginning, and we'll learn a lot along the way. So the ability of NGOs, the environmental movement governments, research bodies and universities, capital markets and corporates and industry to come together to build this ecosystem, it's, it's really important and it's really urgent. Interesting that it goes back to Kate's cooperation point yeah, as absolutely. well, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Kate, returning to your world, um, do you think companies are being rewarded appropriately for what they're doing in decarbonisation. You were talking about, obviously, there's pressure and there's sort of sticks and carrots. What's your view from the breadth of companies that you, you deal with? Um, well, I think there's two aspects to it. I think it's, it, it, it is certainly becoming a necessity. <laughs> it, it's not an option. Um, but those companies who are ahead of the game, I think, are being rewarded. Um, and I feel like we're being, in some ways, you know, we, we've, um, been, I've been very fortunate at Macquarie in that um, we have been given the opportunity to actually look beyond current technologies um, and in some ways that's exactly what Liz is doing as well. While her, it's not a technology um, necessary issue for her, sometimes it's a business model. We, we are incentivised to do that and we're encouraged to do that and um, th that's a very um, a valuable thing and, and we're starting to see that value in some of our businesses. I'll give you a good example. Um, about four or five years ago, we started to look at, at hydrogen as a as, as a potential business. And I think you've said to me a couple of times, Lisa, there were people internally who thought I, we were a bit mad mm -hmm. because hydrogen had been tried before, <laughs> wasn't yeah. going anywhere, was too expensive, was you know um, potentially dangerous. Um, there was no infrastructure. Um, and um, we were actually encouraged internally to look beyond renewables. We have a very strong renewables franchise, but we want to keep reinventing ourselves and adding to that and look at something different. Um, the way we got into hydrogen actually was quite interesting um, and is a bit of an evolution, and I think this is, is, is interesting in itself, was that we actually owned um, a, quite a large gas company, and we were working with management to think about how we might change that company um, as the energy transition occurred. Again, people thought we were a bit mad, but we pushed on um, and we learned a lot. And, and one of the things we discovered was that um, hydrogen was a way the oil and gas sector could transform. Now, this was 2015 or 2016 when people weren't sort of talking about that very much, but it's now become reality. And all the major um, oil and gas companies are undertaking hydrogen projects. 
And I think there's probably two reasons why we're finally getting rewarded for that effort. Reason number one is is policy has emerged. Um, you can see policy very strongly in, in the EU. They announced a 40 gigawatt target um, for hydrogen production by 2030. Now, just to put that into context, a couple of years ago, the installed capacity of green hydrogen globally was some, you know, they were only installing about 100 megawatts a year and, and Europe's saying they're going to put 40 gigawatts in a period of about a decade. So it's mm-hmm. a huge target. But that's emerged to be supported by demand-side pull. So what you've seen Europe do is is, is actually um, encourage through legislation, mandates and incentives um, people like or businesses like their refineries to convert from using grey hydrogen, which is, is, is very carbon intensive, to using low carbon hydrogen, either green or blue, which which actually produces much less carbon. You're also seeing them encourage changes in things like aviation um, and sustainable aviation fuels use low carbon hydrogen as a feedstock. So that industry is really emerging in Europe. Um, and then you suddenly see it emerging in other places like the US. Um, you know, the US has been a bit slower, but the Department of Energy um, has announced an $8 billion package to fund um, a number of hydrogen hubs, which is a huge amount of subsidy. Um, just in the last week, um, production tax credits um, to support low carbon hydrogen production have been announced in the new inflation reduction bill. Um, so we expect the industry to take off in the US as well. So, so the first thing that's really pushed it forward is policy. The second thing is really interesting. It's geopolitics. It's about the recognition that energy security and energy independence are becoming increasingly important. Even more interesting, we're seeing other parts of the world respond to an increasingly volatile world. And so you've seen really strong hydrogen policies come out of places like India and China this year. And that is because both those countries are very dependent on fossil fuel imports. And suddenly they're seeing a path because they have renewable resource that they can create their own energy. So, and is that industry, not where is that not where you expected that that sort of lead to come from? Um, probably not as early. You did no. expect it to come somewhere like India has incredibly cheap solar resource, but they've been a bit slower. They're now taking off, but they've got a, a net zero target of twenty seventy. Yeah. But the policy they've come out with this year is incredibly strong. It encourages the development of an industry and encourages it to happen quickly. So, you know, our belief is that is probably influenced by the need for that energy security, energy independence. And so we're seeing this industry emerge. I think you're both, you know, obviously and and clearly focused on uh, solutions to, you know, the decarbonisation problem. You've both got different audiences. Can I ask you, Liz, firstly, um, do you think we're doing enough as a planet to address the climate challenge and probably more that's an obvious answer to that question but where do the biggest opportunities lie in in your world yeah i think um i think we've seen just this huge momentum build just in in recent years that that you know makes me confident that the net zero train has left the station mm-hmm. um so you know it, it's great that governments and corporates right around the world are leading with the chin, setting big targets, pro- putting process tension within their organisations to make sure that plans are there, you know, that there is there is movement 
we've still got a long way to go to to reach our goals, but but momentum feels good, and yeah. so that's a that's a good start. In our space, um, you know, we see an opportunity for nature-based solutions. When we look at sort of the near-term target, 2030, 2040 targets from particularly corporates around the world, you know, we think there is a massive opportunity for nature-based solutions, whether they be afforestation, reforestation, regenerative landscape practices, um, you know, blue carbon, you know, that's mangrove seagrass, waterways restoration. We see that space having the capacity to make up sort of the NBS bucket to make up circa 80% of the carbon credits required over the next couple of decades. The NBS? Nature-based is, solutions. Right, right, right. So, so, to, so to, to really fulfil this, this transition gap yes. that we've naturally got. So we think that's one very large opportunity. And following rapidly on its heels, you know, we are, you know, we are increasingly intrigued around the biodiversity overlay. Um, so ensuring that a, a, a myopic single focus on carbon doesn't have unintended consequences for our landscapes. And, and right now for carbon, we can see the commercial opportunities through the marketplace. For biodiversity, it's not quite there yet. It's largely a government-sponsored set of initiatives. But you know, we do have a view that over time, there will be greater emphasis placed on the quality of a carbon credit and, and the co-benefits that might wrap around that, that will open up a greater opportunity for us to think even more broadly about our landscapes mm-hmm. and, and even more broadly about how we marry together all those different elements of an ecosystem to make sure it, it is truly healthy yeah. uh, and truly sustainable. So you're saying things like if we plant a certain type of tree, it might be great at pulling out a whole lot of carbon from the atmosphere. But if you've got a whole, you know, one species, it's not yeah, going to work yep. for the rest we, of we've the... We've got to scratch our heads around, you know, where monocultures fit and where right. they don't. We've got to push ourselves around um, native vegetation versus what might be a, a, an economic choice of the most carbon rich yeah. um, vegetation that may just not belong um, in in that ecosystem. So looking more broadly than solely the, 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 the carbon potential of a landscape, but looking more broadly at carbon in the context of you know, nature positive solutions. Yeah. And, and the same question for you as well, Kate. Um, are we doing enough and probably more importantly where do you see the greatest opportunities and are those opportunities are the greatest opportunities going to change every six months as technology changes um well look i agree with liz the train has certainly left the station and that's that's nice you know there was a worry a couple of years ago that we, yeah, were, we were waiting stalled. for a while weren't we, Kate? <laughs> yeah we were waiting for a while um but um what worries me is we don't really have a buffer. <laughs> Are we going to be hard enough and fast enough? And um, you know how how deep are we going to have to cut with emissions? Um, certainly, um, I, I think that we, we need a buffer. Um, there are when you look at climate modelling um, to date, um, a lot of the models have been very accurate, but there are a whole range of things that could occur that we just can't predict. Um, you know what they call feedback loops. Um, so as you have bushfires, they release a huge amount of carbon. What does that mean to, to what we have to achieve and our, our targets? Does it move the goalposts? The thing that keeps me up at night is thinking about the permafrost. So 
the permafrost is melting. Mm. Um, some people have suggested it, it might contain two times as much greenhouse gas as the atmosphere does today. So imagine if that melts. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. So um, what I think that means is we need negative emissions. People do resist it, but we certainly need negative emissions. Um, and that supports loose business with nature-based solution. But we probably need to go beyond that as well and look at things like direct air capture, which is sort of large-scale capturing of carbon in the atmosphere and storing it. Um, and it's kind of interesting because I thought that opportunity was a long way away. Um, as a team, we were talking at the beginning of the year and we were saying, mm, that's a sort of five-year investment horizon maybe. But we've changed our mind in the last six months, um, firstly because the technology has accelerated um, and secondly because policy has come along to support it. Um, the US has actually pledged $3.5 billion to support direct air capture hubs. Um, Its latest legislation is is actually giving a tax credit of $185 a tonne of carbon. And that technological change plus that support means actually that technology is starting to look feasible today, which is great, but we need people to accelerate it and invest in it and, and give ourselves that buffer and that gap. Mm-hmm. So your your message, I think both of your messages are sort of around that cooperation, that cooperation message. Plus, we have to back a lot of horses to get there because you know this race isn't going to be one on one basis, is it? Absolutely not. Yeah. There's that's why it's decarbonisation pathways. There's lots of pathways we have to follow. Okay. Well, Kate and Liz, I think it's been a great discussion, and thank you very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, thanks. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for listening to this episode of Perspectives. You can learn more about how Macquarie is driving climate solutions at macquarie.com. Thank you for listening to this Macquarie Group podcast. All episode disclaimers can be found in the show notes. 